we are in part five of this series and it's going to be really, really exciting. Why don't you take out your Bibles if you have one, uh, take those out, kind of set them on your lap, get ready to go. We're in, going to be in God's word, both in the book of Matthew and in Luke this morning. I just want to share a little bit with you about this series. One thing this series is not is think more about Jesus series. That's not what this is. This is being Jesus, which is going to be uh, a constant drive to act on what you hear and what you know. Uh, We are little Christ. That means our neighbors should see us as duplicates of Christ. What they would have run to Jesus for, they should be able to run to us for so we can direct them to Christ. In other words... We are going to be walking in some very uncomfortable areas. We're going to be in some ways putting up our lives against Christ and seeing what is wrong. What is the dissonance there? What is happening in how he lived out and how we live out? One of my biggest concerns uh, in my life and for you as your shepherd is I think the enemy has stolen away our identity. I think that we have been relegated to thinking that we're not a big deal, what we do doesn't matter, and so we spend all our time in front of the TV. I think that if indeed we understood the identity that what the Bible says is actually real. For example, the Bible says to those who have believed in his name, to those that have called upon him, they've been given the right to become sons of and daughters of God. If that is truly you and your identity, you are then an heir to the throne. You are now a son and daughter of God in authority. You are a son and daughter of God in power. The way that we're living our life is embarrassing because we're not utilizing any of it. That's not right. That's not good. Jesus Christ did not die on the cross so we could watch more TV. Jesus Christ died on the cross that we might bring the kingdom present here in this world. And I believe that the enemy, just like always, has tried to nullify and shut down who you think you are. He is constantly bringing in the doubt and going, you know what? You have way too much sin in your life. There's no way you're going to be useful to anybody. God can't use you. God doesn't need someone powerful to get results. God is powerful. That's where results come from. What he's looking for is availability. What he's looking for is for us to say, yes, Lord, instantly, all the time. So we're going to walk into these uncomfortable conversations. If Jesus healed people, the question has to be on the table. Are you supposed to be praying and healing people? The question is on the table. If you know of someone, anyone in your vicinity that is under the captivation of the enemy, held down prisoner, are you not to go in and set them free on God's behalf? That is a question on the table. If you are just merely passing by as they have been robbed and beaten, I think we have the whole Good Samaritan story backwards. I understand you don't think that you're capable. I'm going to assure you, you are not capable. 
but God is capable and he is working through his people. Remember, the glory isn't to go back to you. You're not to be more impressive. The glory is to go right through you back to the one that it belongs to. And that happens to be God. Therefore, in your weakness, he is viewed as strong. But if you are always strong, then he does not seem viewed at all. You understand what I'm talking about? So I believe that we need to have these conversations that what Jesus did, he did as an example for us to copy him in lifestyle. We are all willing to think about Jesus more. We're all willing to even go to the place of Jesus was nice to poor people. So let's be nice to poor. And we can all get out of our comfort zones to be around somebody in a lower economic class than us. Woo! That is not exciting Christianity. That's not at all what we're talking about. We are talking about world-changing Christianity. We're talking about what Jesus did we are to do. The only way I'm going to convince you of this, especially if you have been with me for any length of time, this church is Christ-centric. We always have this return back to Jesus. This church is Bible-centric. We always bring it back to the Word of God. So the only way I'm going to convince you that what I'm telling you is legit is if I can show you Jesus did it and I can show you in God's Word where it is. If you can see those as a foundation, I believe that you'll begin to move out in risk and begin to move out of your comfort zone. So let's begin to continue to lay that amazing foundation right here, right now. If you are in our sanctuary, you probably got a handout sheet given to you. Take that out and let me give you the fill in the blank as we begin. Once again, we are in part five. This was called Growing Up Jesus, the Early Years of Christ. And I want to give you this fill in the blank. It's simply this. Jesus was fully man, fully God. Jesus was fully man, fully God. Now, let's go quickly about how exactly that works. How in the world does God, deity, add on humanity? I have no idea. And if you came here to find that out, I can't give that to you. That's way over my head. I don't know how that works. All I know is that it does work. All I know is that God's word says, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. We know that it says that he did not consider equality with God something to be hung on to, but made himself nothing. He emptied himself, taking on the servant role. It says that as he added on humanity, he did not cease to become God or cease to be God. He was always God, but somehow he took on limitation. Now that is just bizarre and weird I can't get through trying to figure it all out in my own head. However, the dual nature of Christ as fully God, fully man, I've had a couple things that have helped me understand the gospels a little bit more. Let me just share them. I've shared them with you before. If you're new, let me just bring you up to speed. This is how I view what Jesus did. Imagine uh, as Christianity believes, uh, at least mainstream Christianity, believes in a triune God. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. One God, three persons, right? I had to watch my little hand thingy there. I almost got lost. One God, three persons. 
Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Imagine the redemption plan is to go into play. The second person of the Trinity, who we know as the Son, as he went down, he blindfolded himself. What that means is he created limitation. The reason why I like the blindfold analogy is because it can be removed at any time. It does not change the essence of who you are. It merely blocks what you can normally do. So, for example, if I have a blindfold on, I am not blind. I am limited in what I can do. So the second person, the Trinity, blindfolded, said to the Father, All right, Father, I'm going down. I'm going to be tracking on your voice only. Holy Spirit, wait for my go, because when I'm done, I will hand off to you, and it's your turn. So the Son comes down fully limited, taking on flesh. That means he only knew what the Father gave him. That means he blindfolded his omniscience. Omniscience is knowing everything. You go, well, no, 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 Jesus knew. Jesus didn't know stuff. How does God not know stuff? God just can't suddenly not know something that he already knows. You know, what didn't he know? They said, when are you returning? When are you coming back? Do you remember that? His disciples, when are you coming back and returning and bringing the kingdom? He said, I have no idea. Father hasn't told me that yet. What do you mean he hasn't told you that yet? I thought you were always God. Oh, I am. I just shut that part down and he hasn't downloaded to me. It says, and in Nazareth, Jesus did not do many, many miracles there because of their lack of faith. How does God get shut down in terms of engaging in power and knowing what to do? That only happens through human beings. My purpose in saying this is, and I need you to soak in this, the majority of everything you're going to see Jesus do in the gospels is what purified humanity is to accomplish on God's behalf through God's power. That means it's an example for us. He limited himself so that we would know how to walk in his footsteps. If he just came here full God, we couldn't duplicate anything that he did. Yet here on earth, he said, greater things will you do than these. The only way he would ever say that is if he was being coursed through just like we are. Now he's not exactly like us. Our sin completely screws up everything. Our sin messes up the whole process. Imagine what Adam and Eve would have been like, full humanity, without the fall. I think they were probably a little bit connected more than we are connected. So when Jesus withdrew continually by himself to get downloads from the Father, he was only listening at all times like we are supposed to do. And then sure enough, he would carry that out exactly. Now, what this means for all of us is that as he lays an example, we find that we can chase after him. It says that when Jesus got baptized, the Holy Spirit descended upon him. Why does he need the Holy Spirit to descend upon him if he and the Holy Spirit are equal, fully God? That doesn't make sense. If he takes on humanity and humanity is clothed, with the Holy Spirit, it makes sense because that's what happens to us. It says after being tempted in the desert, he emerged from the desert full of the power of the Holy Spirit. 
That means there was some process by which he accelerated forward. That's what happens with us. Now, a few times you saw him pull up the blindfold. A couple times you saw God peek out of Jesus Christ. Let me give you a couple examples on when that was. Mount of Transfiguration. He's up on a mountain, brings Peter, James, and John around him, and he starts to glow. He's glowing from the inside out, and they all hit the deck. A cloud descends, the Father's talking, Moses and Elijah are there. That is Jesus in his deity breaking out. All right, but then quickly it closes up again. Then in the garden when he's being arrested, do you remember they all came to arrest him and they said, uh, they came up and they said, we want the man. He said, who are you looking for? They said, Jesus of Nazareth. He said, I am he and everyone hit the ground. That's the presence of God. They all dropped and they could no longer stand because they were in the presence of Jesus Christ, fully God. So every once in a while he would pull up the the blindfold and just knock people down and then he'd drop it down going just letting you know who you're dealing with so but most of it was jesus living an example for us we are to duplicate his life let's see how that looks when he was just a child we begin in matthew chapter 2 verse 13 page 808 and the bible's under the seat in front of you matthew chapter 2 verse 13 We're going to kind of fly through a couple pieces here. Let me remind you where we're at in the story. We've just finished what we call the Christmas story. That means that the wise men, of course, there only had to be three. Why? Because only one guy can carry one gift. Remember, we talked about all that. We don't know how many there were, but they came in to Jerusalem, went up to Herod the Great, who is already completely paranoid. And they said, oh, so I hear there's a new king of the Jews. He said, no, I'm the king of the Jews. They go, yeah, yeah, yeah. There's another one. And he's like, what's that? And they told him about the star and the appearance of the star and the timing and all that stuff. And he said, why don't you go find that kid? I'd love to worship him. Which, of course, you know, is bogus. He was going to kill him. They had left his presence and went and visited the child who was now a toddler because the shepherds came when Jesus was a newborn. The magi, the wise men came when he was now either six months to two years old. So he's now a toddler and they're living in Bethlehem. All right. They just visited the child and are beginning to take off. That's where we pick up the story. Verse 13. Now, when they had departed, behold. All right, stop. We got to stop on a word here. The word behold is used a lot in the Bible. We don't use that word. Nobody ever uses that in Walmart. (laughs) Behold, I have yet another item (laughs) to be checked. I left it in my cart. Behold, I'm using debit. Behold, nobody, you're just weird. Don't, don't say that. Okay. In the Bible, behold means, I want you to supplement this one, right? It means, seriously, check this out. That's what it means. Behold means, seriously, check this out. All right. So we're going to, we're going to, we're going to play that for a moment here and you'll see how it works. Now, when they had departed, seriously, check this out. An angel of the Lord, right? It works. Okay. Just put that in there. An angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. Now, this is the second time that Joseph has had a visitation of an angel. Last time he said, don't divorce Mary. What's going on here is a God thing. Stay. All right. He's going to have four of these. This is two of four. A lot of dreaming, a lot of angelic visitation during this time. 
He appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, rise. That means get out of bed. Take the child and his mother, which is a reverse order for normal Hebrew literature, because the child is so important, and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you. All right, what was just asked of him is rather significant. Get up in the middle of the night, move your entire family a hundred miles south and relocate now. Now, I would suggest that for most of us, gentlemen, we have two laws to answer to. There's the Lord and there's our wife. You understand? You don't just go, babe, we're moving. When? Right now. Grab the baby. We're going, right? It's, usually you have to go, all right, God said this. That's okay with you, right, babe? You know, that kind of thing. You follow through. Okay. So he had to get everybody on board. But notice it says, and I'm going to call you back. It's not a permanent move. It's a temporary move. But boy, that sure sounds expensive for a poor family. We'll talk about that. For Herod the Great is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night, which is a very dangerous time to travel, and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod the Great. All right, a couple things you need to know historically. Is it odd for Jews to go to Egypt? No, we are not in the Old Testament. The Old Testament was the Jews versus Egypt. This is a whole new world. This is Rome owns everybody. So whether you move from one part of Rome to another part of the Roman Empire is not a big deal. You're switching leadership areas because they had localized leadership. So, so many Jews for whatever reason, would go down to Egypt that they actually had whole communities that were only Jews. Josephus, a historian who wrote during the time of Jesus' birth, wrote, there are approximately one million Jews in Egypt at this time. So is that odd? No, it's very common for the Jewish people to go south if they need to get away because they'll go right into a huge community of their own people. That part's not unusual. The unusual part is get up in the middle of the night and go right now. Remember, when they offered the sacrifice for baby Jesus in the temple, they had to pay the poor man's version because they don't have any money. Relocating is expensive. Where are they going to get the cash for that? Oh, that's right. Some wise men just dropped a huge amount of cash on them and walked away. That's unusual. Real quick question for you. How many of you have had a monetary need, prayed about it, prayed about it, prayed about it, never got it early, last minute God drops it in your lap? Raise your hand. Yeah, that's what I thought. A huge amount of you. That's what happened right here. Right at the last moment, God drops in this incredible windfall and then immediately it is used for a need to move the family down. That's called God working upstream. He knows what's about to happen, but why doesn't he give it to us early? Cause we'll lose it. That's why he gives you the early blessing and then it's time to move. And you're like, Ooh, yeah, about that. I need another one. He said, what did you do with the last one I gave you? I have no idea. It was on the counter last time I checked, right? So he gives it to us at the very last second. All right. Uh, a couple other things you need to know. For a Jew reading this story, you're immediately supposed to think of the last time there was going to be a genocide of babies. And that was who? 
Around what time? Moses. Moses was a little guy in the little raft, the life raft, right? Where his parents sent him down the Nile. Why? Because little baby boys, Hebrew boys, were being slaughtered. You're immediately supposed to go, this is the next Moses. The first Moses brought us the law. The next Moses is reinterpreting the law and clarifying the law. All right? And then the last thing I'll mention is I want you to notice the, the household that Jesus grows up in. It is a household of absolute instant obedience at all times. Remember, Jesus is growing up. He did not come out of the womb, my dear woman. <laughs> Bow now to, can you cut this umbilical cord? This is very difficult to walk over here. See what I'm saying? It's not, it's not like that. Jesus grew up and he increased in knowledge and wisdom. That means there was a learning curve. He grew up under a household of Mary and Joseph who they hear phrases like, Mary, you're about to have the only virgin birth in all of history and no one will believe you and they'll probably stone you alive. Yes, Lord. Joseph, seriously, she didn't mess around. This is a God thing. Trust me. Yes, Lord. Joseph, get up in the middle of the night, relocate a hundred miles south. Yes, Lord. Joseph, do you understand the household Jesus grew up in? It was a household of absolute, perfect, instantaneous, yes, Father. That allows Jesus to set this pattern of constant yes, Father, yes, Father, yes, Father, yes, Father, at all times as he's becoming more and more aware of who exactly he is. It's fascinating. Move on. It says all this whole going down to Egypt and coming back thing, according to Matthew, was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet Hosea in chapter 11, verse one out of Egypt. I called my son. Now, what's fascinating about that is that original reference has nothing to do with the Messiah at all. It has to do with the nation of Israel being moved out in the Exodus from their captivity of Egypt. And you go, what does that have to do with the Messiah? Tie-in. Israel was created to be a drama presentation of what God wants on earth. The people group. That's how they've always been used. They were referred to as the son of God collectively. How did they do on that? Not awesome. Now we have the new son of God in the person of Jesus Christ doing it perfectly. He is the new Israel. He is going to come out of Egypt as well. Make sense? All right. Pick it up in verse 16. Then Herod, meaning Herod the Great, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men who didn't come back and tell him where the baby was because they know he's a psycho, became furious because he's unstable. He sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old or under according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. All right, this is called the slaughter of the innocents, only recorded in history right here, nowhere else. How is it possible that you have thousands of baby boys being slaughtered and there's no record of it? I can tell you in every household this happened, it was the worst thing they were ever going to experience. So why is it not recorded anywhere else? Because that's not exactly how it happened. Let me give you kind of some background on this. 
estimates of population of Bethlehem in the time of Jesus and the surrounding region are 1,000 people. If there's only 1,000 people, how many of them do you think have baby boys two years old and under? Max estimate, 20. Why didn't 20 kids being slaughtered make the news? Because Herod is such a psycho, he was killing way more people than that. It doesn't even get into the paper. Let me remind you of who Herod the Great is. He began his reign by of the Jewish people by killing members of the Sanhedrin, their ruling class. He then kills 300 officers. He then kills his favorite wife. Remember, if you have a favorite wife, something's wrong with you. All right? He then kills his oldest son, Alexander. Then he kills, by strangulation, his other two boys, Aristobulus. Then he ends up plotting to kill a thousand people at his death. This guy killed so many massive groups of adults that in an environment where kids weren't appreciated, this is never going to even show up on the map. This is a terrible, terrible man. Herod the Great did a lot of showy things, but he went insane at the end of his life. And this is just one of the many things that he did. Now, a couple other things that we need to understand. I was reading this one commentary, uh, and they mentioned something that it just caught me off guard because I hadn't thought about it this way. In Revelation chapter 12, John the Revelator, the beloved, the disciple of Jesus, Jesus' best friend, sees a vision. He said, and I saw a vision in heaven. There was a woman. She had 12 stars around her head. She had the, the sun at her feet, right? And all these different things. She began to go into birth pains and was about to have a child. Behold, I saw, seriously, check this out. I saw, right? I saw another vision of a dragon with multiple heads and multiple crowns coming up in front of her, waiting to devour the child when it was born. Now, every time we read Revelation, we always think of end times. He's actually zooming back to this story right here. The woman is Israel. She was giving birth to the Messiah, but who was there waiting? The enemy. Who's usually the dragon? Satan. Satan is waiting to destroy. He had incited Herod to try to destroy this child. Did it work? No, of course not. God was always one step ahead. He then moves the child out to Egypt and it doesn't work. But what's so powerful about all this is that it helps to explain why do bad things happen when God moves, right? Because you would think if the savior is born, people shouldn't die. It kind of ruins the moment. You can't have the savior of the world show up and then have 20 baby boys, 20 households wrecked on the same time frame. It's because God is not the only factor engaging with us. There is always the dragon to run and ruin. Why does he want to destroy you? Does he want to destroy you because you're watching too much TV? No. He wants to destroy you because you look like God. He wants to destroy you because you are loved by God. He wants to destroy you because you have potential as a child of God to wreck his kingdom because Jesus made it so. He said in the gates of hell will what? Will not 
prevail against the advancement of God's family. So why does Satan want to take you out so much? Because you're dangerous. Until we understand ourselves as dangerous, we have yet to begin to live. Verse 17, speaking of all this crying over hurt children and dead children, he quotes this prophecy. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah 600 years before this. In Jeremiah 31, 15, a voice was heard in Ramah, a place, weeping, loud lamentation, that's sobbing. Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. All right. What was the original context of that prophecy? Jeremiah lived during one of the darkest eras eras of all Israel's history, the deportation to Babylon. Here's what happened. Israel had so fallen away from God that God was going to shut them down. Now that's a terrible thing. He used, he, he used the Assyrians to take the north. He used the Babylonians to take the south. They lost the holy city of Jerusalem in 586 BC. Their throne lineage from King David was snapped and that tree was cut down. All their hope was crushed and they were marched out as captives from their own promised land. That was in 586 BC. Where did they start marching from to go to Babylon? Rama. That was mentioned right here. Jeremiah says, I can only picture Rachel. Remember, she was married to Jacob, 12 tribes of Jacob, the 12 boys. She was his favorite wife, right? And she died giving birth to Benjamin, the last boy that was going to be mentioned during that time. Jacob buried her in that area. Jeremiah says, I can only picture her rising up out of her grave watching all of us get marched out in deportation from our promised land and that would just break her heart that was the original context why does matthew mention it here because the tears that started there the crying of we've lost everything were now matched again by a family losing everything but this time the tears started here the tears just ended here why because now the Savior has been born. We all tracking on this? All right. One person is. Praise God. <laughs> Verse 19. You have to listen to the message again and go, oh, I still don't get it. Okay. Verse 19. But when Herod died, and depending on who you're listening to, it's either 4 BC or 1 BC. When Herod died, behold, seriously, check this out. An angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph. That's three out of four in Egypt. They now live there saying rise. Don't you think Joseph would go? Can we not have a calling during the day? Why are we always getting up in the middle of the night? Right? Why can't I just wake up and God goes, the angels have packed thy car. It is time to go. No, there's never that. You're like, man, rise, take the child and his mother and go to the land of Israel. Go back home for those who sought the child's life are dead. That's Herod the Great. 
And he rose and took the child and his mother and went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea in place of his father, Herod, he was afraid to go there. Yeah, of course he was. Who's this? Simple history lesson. Herod the Great was the only leader to keep peace in this region of the world for the Roman Empire. They gave him a lot of responsibility. They gave him the title king. There was no way they were just going to drop that on one of his kids till they owned it and earned it. His first son to take the throne was to be Archelaus. Archelaus was a psycho just like his dad. There's no way they were going to give him the title king, so they gave him the title of ethnarch, which was a lower title, and said, you can earn the king thing if you do well. Archelaus did not do well. As a matter of fact, Archelaus began his reign by slaughtering 3,000 people. That's a bad start. People don't like you when you kill them, I found out. I don't know that personally, but I heard that. Now, there were three boys that were all going to take up the divided area. They broke Herod's land into three pieces. The south, this region, was run by Archelaus. The north was run by Herod Antipas. Remember, Herod is a title like Caesar. It's not a name. So you always have to say Herod who? When we say Herod, there's Herod the Great, there's Herod Antipas, there's Herod Archelaus, there's Herod Philip. It's a title. So there was Herod Archelaus in the south, Herod Antipas in the north, and that's the guy you know the most about. You go, what? I've never even heard that dude's name. He's the Herod in all the gospels. He's the one who put John the Baptist in jail and beheaded him. He's the one that was there during Jesus's trial and crucifixion. He's that guy. He's the common Herod you're familiar with in the Bible. He runs the north. Then the best son of Herod was named Philip, and he ran the area on the east side of the Jordan River where Jesus didn't go very often, drag. Jesus always grew up under terrible leadership, all right? So Archelaus comes to power. The Jews argue about it. He gets the title ethnarch. After 10 years, they finally run him out of town because he's a horrible, horrible person. He was deposed by Rome and sent to Gaul, for cruelty and tyranny now if rome has to move you out that's pretty bad right so when joseph heard i'm going back to my house in bethlehem but archelaus is ruling there's no way i'm going there unless god makes me look at the next line and being warned in a dream that's four out of four he withdrew to the district of galilee in the north under Herod Antipas. And he went and lived in a city called Nazareth so that was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled that he would be called a Nazarene. This is critical because Jesus was always known as Jesus of Nazareth. Why? Because he didn't have last names. So you had to kind of just kind of have some way to tell if it's Jesus, the guy that works at the pizza shop or it was Jesus, the miracle worker guy, right? So he was Jesus of Nazareth. Nazareth was not a very cool city in the eyes of the Jews. Estimated population per archaeological dig, 480. Super tiny town. Only useful for one reason to the Roman Empire. They housed their military there. So Jews, 480, and a huge Roman Empire, uh, Roman Empire army. So how much did the Jews like the Romans? Not a lot. 
So do you want to go live in a town where their army is housed? No, that's a terrible idea. Anyone that lives there is kind of like a tax collector. You're siding with the enemy. That's Jesus's hometown. Four miles away was the capital of the region where all the Jews lived called Sephoris. Jesus didn't live there. He lived in an area where there was trade routes and all that stuff, but he lived in the despised section that no Jews would respect. It was so bad that when Jesus was calling his disciples, one of them ran and grabbed a guy by the name of Nathaniel. You remember this? Nathaniel, dude, we found the Messiah. Seriously, where's he from? Nazareth. What? What? That's a horrible, nothing good comes from Nazareth. That was his reaction. So being Jesus of Nazareth was a put down. Of course, Jesus does everything with put downs. They take them just like the term Christian was a put down. You take it, you spin it, you own it and reinvent it. And now under the name of Jesus of Nazareth, there is power. What do you mean? The prophets talked about it. The prophets always mentioned that the Messiah would be rejected. And sure enough, Nazareth pretty much met rejection. There is one other side note. The term for, remember I told you that David's tree got cut down, the whole lineage of the kings? Isaiah said, one day when the kings are cut off, a little branch is going to grow up and a new king will show up, the king of kings. Branch is the word Nezer. Sounds an awful lot like Nazareth. That's the connection. Turn with me to Luke chapter 2. Luke chapter 2 verse 39 as we close out. Luke cuts out that entire story and just jumps forward. And when they had performed everything according to the law of the Lord, they returned into Galilee to their own town of Nazareth. And the child grew and became strong, filled with wisdom, and the favor of God was upon him. How do you grow up if you're God? Oh, that's right. He became like us. He increasingly became aware of who he was. And we read that story right here. Now his parents went to Jerusalem every year at the feast of Passover. And when he was 12 years old, they went up according to custom. All Jewish males were to show up at at least three festivals, Pentecost, Passover, and the feast of tabernacles. Jesus's parents were hardcore. They always went. So Jesus was always taken 75 miles south to go to what? Jerusalem, the holy city. He is now just before his bar mitzvah. Bar mitzvah means you are now become a man in the eyes of the Jewish population. Jesus is 12, bar mitzvah is at 13. How is he at this point? And when the feast was ended, Passover week, as they were returning back to northern Galilee, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem. His parents didn't know it, but supposing him to be in the group, they went a day's journey and then they began to search for him among their relatives and acquaintances. When they didn't find him, they returned to Jerusalem searching for him. After three days, they found him in the temple. All right, here's how it works. Whole villages travel the 75 miles south. You would have a massive road trip. It was all your friends and family. The kids would hang together. The moms would hang together. The dads would hang together. Mom and the kids would go early in the morning. 
the, the dads could travel faster without the kids. So they met them and they caught up with them at night and they would stay the night. They'd get up in the morning and do it all over again. Everybody was all over the place massive caravan going down to Jerusalem. They weren't worried about Jesus. They were one big community. So they would kind of go, I'm sure Joseph has him. Oh, I'm sure Mary has him. And they lost their kid. So if you think you're a bad parent, just remember this story, underline it. You'll feel better about yourself. It happened to Jesus's family too. All right. You happen to lose yours at Disneyland. They lost theirs on the way to Passover, whatever. Same thing. So what would happen is They then travel, you can travel 20 miles a day on foot. So they traveled a full day, 20 miles out. Then they start looking for him for a day. Then they got to travel all the way back 20 miles to Jerusalem just to find their kid. They are freaking out because they think they've lost him totally. They found him in the temple, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking him questions. And all who heard him were amazed beside themselves with amazement at his understanding and answers. And when his parents saw him, they were astonished, struck out of their senses. And his mother said to him, son, why have you treated us so? Behold, seriously, check this out. Your father and I have been searching for you in great distress. Now this is mom being mom. This is mom being extreme. Why do we call it extreme? The word she used for distressed is the soul's suffering in Hades. So she's like, we've been burning in hell. You know, okay, mom, I get it. I totally understand. You don't really, that's a little extreme, but whatever. Okay. Now she is really scared and she's rebuking him. Check out his response. He said to them, why were you looking for me? Now that sounds like a smart aleck response. It is not. Jesus will get smart aleck later as he grows up, but this is not it. Why were you looking for me? In other words, you should have known where I was. Why did you lose me? Look at what he says next. Did you not know I have to be in my father's house? But they didn't understand what the saying was that he spoke to them. Here's what he said. Mom, dad, you've trained me my whole life. Yes, father. Yes, father. Yes, father. Yes, father. Where else would I be? You finally give me a chance at 12 years old to engage in the temple area. Wouldn't you assume that I'm going to hang out in my father's house, no offense, Joseph, in my father's house, this is where I belong. You've trained me to believe this is where I belong. So I don't think the question is, why am I here? The question is, how come you weren't here? Where were you going? I know what I'm supposed to do. All commentators say at this moment, he has an awareness of who he is and his messiahship, right? Then it says, and he went down with them and came to Nazareth and was submissive to them. Why does it say that he's submissive? Because he's the sinless lamb of God who would not violate the fifth commandment out of 10. What's the fifth commandment? Honor your father and mother. As much as you look at this story, you should never see disobedience or rebellion. That's not what happened there. Jesus was instructing a lesson and saying, my father trumps what's going on here. And that's what you trained me to do. And his mother treasured all these things in her heart and Jesus increased, cut his way forward in wisdom, in stature, and in favor with God and man. Listen, what's the point of this message? It's this, 
In many ways, Jesus is a lot more familiar and a lot more human than you might imagine. The idea of growing and learning and failing and understanding. Failing isn't sin. Growing up and gathering knowledge isn't sin. Jesus was sinless, but he was not not human. So we need to wrap our minds around the idea that all of this is an orchestration to demonstrate for us how we ought to live. This is not a, well, Jesus is God, so hey, he did a whole bunch of fancy stuff. That's got nothing to do with me. You're wrong. Jesus did what you and I should be doing on a daily basis. This has put us into a whole nother realm of learning. We have to begin to own our identity as sons and daughters of God. Amen? Amen. Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you. Thank you for your beautiful orchestration of bringing your son, your one and only son, Jesus, into this world. Jesus, the way that you blindfolded yourself and you limited yourself and and set a beautiful example. Holy Spirit, the way that you move among the church right here, right now, and that you are the one empowering us and calling us and guiding us and comforting us and rebuking us and chastising and directing. God, we just want to say thank you. We just want to say we love you and we want to bend our minds to say, yes, Father. Yes, Father. Yes, Father. So right now, while we have clarity, we say, yes, Father, our life is yours. In Jesus' name, amen.